You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, thank you for the service that and worship that we've come from or going to. We ask that we might sense your presence even now with your word open before us. Please guide us in your truth by your spirit, that your name might be lifted up, and we truly might be a body of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So Acts 1 and uh, the first 11 verses will be our, our range today. Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, now it took me a lot of years before I realized that this was the second volume of Luke, that Luke and Acts go together. And in one sense, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, parallels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. Interesting, the Old Testament sort of begins with a unit. The New Testament begins with a unit. And uh, Acts, I think, ought to be attached, as it were. It's, it's the bridge between the letters and, uh, and the Gospels. But in Luke's mind, this is just volume two. Um, I have a study sheet. Does everybody have one? Uh, sure. We'll just... We'll keep the pile there, and if you see somebody come in, you can grab it. So, reflections on studying Acts. Uh, I did this feeling like this might be a bit of a crunch uh, time with the rally day uh, service before. So, let me move through this relatively quickly. Uh, Acts focuses our attention on the work that Jesus began to do and that he now continues to do through the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ, the church. Acts emphasizes, in other words, Christ's work is still going on. It's what Jesus began to do, and that Christ's work continues through the Spirit of Christ. Acts emphasizes the practical challenges facing a dynamic church. These challenges include choosing leaders, living under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel, overcoming ethnic and cultural barriers in Christ, becoming the church in teaching, fellowship, worship, and prayer, and engaging in world mission. I don't think there's anything that we can select out of that list. Uh, This is what comes with being the church. So, for example, world mission is not an option that if we're really nice and really good, then we decide that we're going to take that up. Uh, That's just essential. It's part of the DNA of the church. Uh, So I think that it's it's interesting to just see Acts in its dynamic aspect. Uh, One of the things in pastoral theology that I talk about uh, is living in tension. And a church can choose to either live in negative tension, which I think is indifference, apathy, disobedience, not paying attention to the word of God, or living in positive tension. And the positive tension comes from engaging in mission, uh, 
following the Sermon on the Mount, praying the Psalms, engaging as witness and in worship. What you can't do is live tension-free. So it's either going to be negative tension or it's going to be positive tension. Now, if you've been in the hospital for any length of time, you realize how weak you are when you're bedridden. And uh, like the astronauts, when they come down having experienced weightlessness for a period of time, are so weak. Here are these physical specimens that are in great shape when they start out. I have to be in a wheelchair. Uh, So there's a sense in which the church is constantly in this sort of spiritual aerobic exercise. We do have to uh, sort of engage uh, mission and ministry if we expect to grow and if we expect to have strength. Number three, Acts reminds us of the close and dynamic interplay between the human element and the divine in the life of the church. Kind of that incarnational pattern continues in the body of Christ. Uh, Human to the full and divine in the full. Luke's second volume is about, and here's a title for Acts. Acts is, in Greek is praxis, which it means to practice, to work. Acts of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles and the church. I think if I remember right, that title comes from John Stott. Acts of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles and the church. Number four, Acts describes the beginning of the early church, but it remains, as I just said, the beginning, that the church never outgrows and moves beyond. And I think that's true when you think of it personally in terms of your Christian life, um, and our worship is built around that kind of continuity of, uh, you never outgrow the Beatitudes. They always become the character, they always are and remain the character description of the believer. And so I see Acts as a very contemporary, relevant message to the church in the 21st century as in the first. Number five, the church in Acts underwent constant change and transition. Uh, You know, we really at times would like stability um, and nothing to change. But I don't see that at all in the book of Acts. I see constant change. and having to adapt, to adjust, to be flexible. Some of that pressure for change was due to persecution. Some of it was due to opportunities for advancing the gospel. But the church in Acts did not have time to sit back, rest on its laurels. Acts describes a vital, dynamic, highly participatory church. So we just can't live tension free. Now, there's uh, two promises, two commands, two questions in these 11 verses in Acts 1 through 11. And that's what I'd like to draw your attention to and group our thinking around. The two promises in verse 4, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them. Now, he has spent 40 days teaching and, uh, and showing the, uh, the apostles by convincing proofs of the resurrection. And I just, from a uh, hospitality standpoint, um, 
I think we should underscore on one occasion while he was eating with him. Now that does several things. Uh, one, uh, in his uh, resurrected body, it's physical enough to eat. Uh, and two, uh, what he's about to say, which is of profound importance for the life in, uh, forever for the church, is set around the table. And that's really consistent with the profound teaching that Jesus gave so often in settings that were very ordinary, very human, very relational. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't think there's any contradiction here between Jesus' offer of the Spirit in the upper room. It's just consistent, and it's a reiteration of the gift of the Spirit. It's going to be poured out on them at Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days from the Passover. Jesus has spent 40 days with them talking about uh, and talking about their interpretation and understanding of the word that pointed to the cross and the resurrection. And now, 10 days from now, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost will fall on the church, and it will forever mark the church. So the first word, though, don't leave, but wait. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. I, and I would see that kind of almost on two horizons. The first horizon, just the practicality of waiting for Pentecost and for the coming of the Spirit. But secondly, I think maybe all Christian ministry ought to begin with this command, wait. It doesn't issue out of our initiative, out of our achievement, out of our exercise, out of our willfulness. Uh, and I don't know about you, but the older I get, and my wife can probably bear witness to this, the less I'm capable of waiting. I would think it'd be the other way around, that as you get older, you get more used to waiting, more accepting of waiting. And I find I'm just the opposite. Um, I want life to come faster. Um, I don't want to wait for, and I have any number of things that I'm waiting for. Uh, and I find myself anxious and, and restless. Um, uh, I just say it. Um, I wish Andrew had waited. I, I just wish that that had sort of developed slower. And... Um, and it happened before, you know, I could put my two cents in. But um, I think waiting is just, is really important. And the more we can do things together out of consensus, out of wholeness, the better off we are. Now, sometimes you do have to pull the trigger and you have to take action and you have to move forward. Um, Whatever this is, is not a recipe for passivity. This is not waiting, waiting room waiting. This is waiting on the Lord, which takes far more intensity, oftentimes, than even the action. 
and the, initi uh, the initiative that the Lord gives. Number one, the four comings of Jesus, the parousia, the passion, the perkelete, and, the and his abiding presence. Those have worked out in the upper room discourse, those four. Uh, they have meant a lot to me when I grasp that these are the four comings and goings of Jesus upon which all sense of comfort and peace depend. So the God who comforts is a comforting God because Jesus came and because Jesus is coming again and because Jesus died and rose again and because Jesus gives the spirit and because he has promised his presence. Uh, that's what our lives depend upon. That's the source, the foundation of comfort. What Christ has done for us. Um, and uh, if you can get those in a Hallmark card, have at it. If you can express that. I, but I'm looking for those four when we comfort one another. Number two, the promise of the Holy Spirit is the most self-effacing member of the Trinity. And this will come out, I think, in Acts, even more so than the incarnate one. So they're out-humbling one another in the Trinity. You might say that the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. Uh, that idea belongs to Dale Bruner, not me. Good lawyers tend to do most of their work behind the scenes to save their clients from public confrontation and litigation. And I've had the experience of working in, in New York City with, with a couple of lawyers that to me epitomize this type of advocacy. Um, we spend a lot of time joking about lawyers, um, and yet uh, when I think of these individuals and their commitment to Christ and their uh, help to the church, I think of, well, the Holy Spirit and the advocacy of the Spirit. The best lawyers never draw attention to themselves, neither does the Spirit. They have their clients back and they have their clients' best interests at heart. The Holy Spirit never goes beyond Jesus and never becomes his rival. Any question or comment on that? Boy, I, at school, my classes are so dialogical. Here, I just talk. It seems kind of, uh, it's a different pedagogy. Uh, but uh, number three, in what sense are we better off because Jesus ascended and gave the Spirit? Now, if you want, uh, we won't stop and read this now, John 16, but you, it'd be great if you would go and, and, and read that. Uh, one of the questions that, to me, is, is an interesting and profound question is how did the church adapt to the absence of Jesus' literal, physical presence? And I would say at the end of the day, they adapted remarkably well. I mean, they did not have Jesus in the flesh, and they had been used to that. It was hard enough to follow Jesus physically present there. And don't we all sort of envy that, that early experience? If only we could have that, the actual Jesus, and follow him. But they transitioned very well. Why? 
because of the Holy Spirit. And this meant that Jesus was limited in the reality of the incarnation, limited in his physical presence to where he could be. And the Holy Spirit now expands the influence and impact of Christ by the Spirit's presence. Gordon Fee is now with the Lord, but this is a great quote by him. Uh, Pentecostal in background uh, and taught at Regent College in Vancouver. The church is the arena in which that heavenly invasion plays itself out. Because the Spirit has invaded and brought a new forward-looking orientation to the empowered church because its redemption is sealed and guaranteed, because God's nature has infected human hearts, and because the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is accessible, the church should live differently as a colony of heaven. We throw ourselves into the present precisely because the future is already secured. I was telling Mickey that uh, yesterday we were at a two-hour African-American memorial service. One of my students who's in his late 40s uh, and had a career in police, policing and as a detective and then felt the Lord calling him to uh, full-time ministry. And uh, he went off in his uh, meditative eulogy for his grandfather, who really served as his father, uh, on the difference between insurance and assurance. And he said, Allstate, Farmers, uh, State Farm, they can insure your property, but they can't give you any assurance. And the kind of assurance that we are looking for comes only from the Lord. And that confirmation, that sense, the truth that confirms and affirms uh, it was really a great point that he made. Uh, number four, the literal space-time 40-day appearances of Jesus ended with a literal ascension. And Jesus might have trans transitioned from this earthly state to his heavenly state by vanishing from the scene as he did on previous occasions, but the fact that he was taken up before their very eyes in a cloud hid from their sight served two important purposes. This time his departure was final and Jesus' bodily ascension was indicative of a new nature. In the uh, sermon, which I'll give in a few minutes, um, <laughs> went through once at the 730 service, but the blind Bartimaeus, I, as a pastor in the modern era, post-enlightenment time, I always feel somehow some comment needs to be made about the miraculous. I don't want to stop and, and spend the whole, as it were, the whole sermon defending the miraculous. But I also want to be situationally aware enough to know how that counters the modern mindset. How in contemporary thought, we like the ascension. Well, this is just myth. This is legend. This is a literary kind of story that's attached here to somehow say Jesus was really important. Um, and I think it boils down to, 
And here's the question as I would pose it. And I should have put this in my notes for you. Are we the accidental product of an impersonal universe subject to blind chance and, mo and random forces existing in a sphere of energy devoid of promise, plan, purpose, and fulfillment? Because if you write out the miraculous, that's what you kind of have to accept, that this is all accidental, it's all time plus chance, it's all random forces, it ends with a materialistic, kind of nihilistic conclusion, that's it. Or, are we the holy possession of God in Christ, personally chosen by God, predestined for communion with God, adopted into the community of God's people, recipients of God's grace, redeemed by his personal sacrifice on our behalf, and signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. Those are two radically different worldviews. And the worldview that I just said can resonate with blind Bartimaeus being healed, or by an ascended Lord. So, what was A? The two promises. Did I say two commands, or did I say two promises? I got myself confused. Two promises, the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the second coming of Christ. If you look at verse 11, Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Luke, writing as an historian, one who we feel had some medical background uh, as a physician, was knowledgeable of Greek culture, probably the only Greek-speaking uh, Greek person speaking in the New Testament. Uh, and he says, in the same, Je the same Jesus in the same way is coming back. Letter C on your outline, two commands, the command to wait for the Holy Spirit and the command to witness to the ends of the earth. And in a way, uh, verse 4 follows the pattern of Acts. Don't leave Jerusalem. And Pentecost takes place in Jerusalem the birth of the church with more than 3,000 uh, saved out of that uh, tremendous proclamation that Peter gives. But wait for the gift of my father pr promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then following to verse 7, it is not for you to know the times and dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be, you will be <laughs> witnesses. Not, it would be great if you decided that it would be a nice thing to do, but you will be. Um, my most interesting context for doing the book of Acts, uh, and you'll share in this, I think, as well, was in Mongolia. Um, I've been to Mongolia about four times, early 90s into the 2000. Um, and uh, 
I went there because I had a, a really close Chinese friend who got me involved. Uh, and I probably you've heard me tell, talk about Dan Lamb before, but uh, Dan was a, a contractor living in London, uh, had projects going in three, on three continents, uh, used job, went to a John Stott weekend retreat for business people, along with his wife, Grace and his life was forever changed. Um, and uh, with the gifts that he had, which were considerable and talents, uh, he devoted those to reaching the unreached, the people that nobody was reaching. And uh, ministered, at one point, uh, he and this small mission group that he formed, mainly of friends, uh, in Asia and in the West, uh, they supported 400 lay pastors in Vietnam. Um, he started Phnom Penh Bible School in Cambodia. Uh, and uh, and he st I went with him on his second trip to Mongolia. And uh, all by the Spirit of God, because a variety of circumstances, Union Bible Training Center is a very viable uh, Pastor Training Institute in Ulaanbaatar today. Not because of what we did at all. In fact, that's been the marvel. It's been marvelous to see over time God raising this up and bringing people into the into the picture. But you can imagine what it's like to study Acts in Mongolia with first generation believers that they've all just come to Christ. There's no parents. There's no grandparents that are Christians. They're the first. Um, and to see the church sort of take off, and it brings you know, the book of Acts just alive in a very powerful way. Uh, we've also done it in Ghana, again, with mainly first-generation uh, believers. I do think that if we're third, fourth, or fifth-generation believers, we can still learn quite a bit from from the book of Acts. Well, I didn't bold uh, D, two questions. Oh, I'm gonna have to go to work. Um, two questions. The first question is asked by the apostles, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The wrong question. They didn't get it yet. Uh, we'll pick it up with that, but um, next time. Uh, and the second question, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Uh, yeah, let's pick it up with that uh, the next time, uh, the two questions. And I'll put this quote uh, in the notes. Uh, and just at the end there, you might look. This gives you some, uh, I hope, incentive for looking over these notes. Uh, Luke 24, 4 through 9, the description of the resurrection, is so parallel to Acts 1, 10 through 12. Um, Luke penned it, obviously intentionally, drawing a parallel between the resurrection and the ascension. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks for your goodness to us. We ask that we might be part of this kind of Acts church. We might see ourselves in the pages of Luke's description and that we might sense both the, uh, the reality of following Jesus in the continued ministry of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father.
Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.